Hello and welcome to The Week at Work. Uh, this is episode 27. I'm your host, uh, Dave Gibney, and with me today I have my co-host, Claire O'Connor, but also we have two guests. Uh, we have Connor McCabe, who's an activist and author of Sins of the Father, which is a historical look at Irish capitalism, but also author of Money um, and sort of understanding finance and how it works. Uh, and I'd urge anybody out there that hasn't already read, read either of those books, go out and buy them today. You can get them from Connolly Books there in Temple Bar as well if needed. Uh, and also we have Saoirse McHugh, a former Green Party member and current Green Movement activist and and you might actually come across Saoirse now on a new podcast as well called The ABCs of Green Politics. Um, as we normally do, uh, we go to the front pages of the papers and then we go through some of the big stories of the week. And also we sometimes try and figure out stories that haven't been covered in the mainstream news, news uh, cycle. But before we do that, before we go on to it, just to say, if you haven't already heard, um, we've set up a new uh, project called Left Block, which includes four or five podcasts and a news website um, where we're going to be trying to engage political economy across the island of Ireland, um, as well as uh, having an alternative left-wing media uh, platform uh, for your delectation. Um, so without further ado, though, I'll, uh, on that, sorry, there's a, a Patreon if you want to become involved. Uh, it's patreon.com forward slash left block. Um, so without further ado, I'll, I'll go to Claire first to say, see what is on the front pages of some of the papers that you've seen there. Okay, so um, I had a look at the Sunday Times and the big picture of yesterday's demonstration, the, so obviously there was a, a fascist organised, the National Party had an organised um, demo outside the Dáil yesterday and uh, anti-fascists turned up to oppose it. Um, so there's a picture of that on the front of the page, a lot of people, ma funnily enough, the anti-maskers are masked up because um, they don't want to be recognised which is a whole other conversation. But a couple of other things on the, on the front of that paper are budget presents Christmas bonus to PUP claimants. Um, so I think this is, and we haven't really heard much about the budget, to be honest, because there's been so much COVID, considering it's only, what, three days away, there's been very little leaks. But that what jumped out to me about that was, it's, it's the idea of, you know, oh, we're going to give the people on social welfare a little few quid extra. It's not gone into the actual... Um, the substance of the budget and you know I, I think there's a real desire to make it look like this is going to be a really generous budget that the government are going to be invested in public services but on you know i think we'll get into it obviously later with connor the, the the depth of what's going to be happening in the budget but i think um yeah seeing that on the front page is a little bit like oh give me a break christmas bonus i think any journalist that talks about this stuff knows that anytime you bring up the christmas bonus around social welfare all it does is cause huge rage against people on social welfare you know you have people arguing about the, the whole free money and freeloader thing and it's just yeah i just I, i'd be a little bit um skeptical about that was put on the front page uh, another story is statutory sick pay in the works so it's a story um that leo about basically leo radgar is looking at uh, implementing mandatory sick pay next year. I mean, considering they all voted down an actual bill, a decent bill on it last week, I'd be sceptical about that. But it says that anybody over the six days that there will be legislation to force employers to pay uh, sick pay. I mean, which obviously I'd be massively in support of. But, you know, the idea that Leo Radcliffe is ever going to be the person to bring that in, I find laughable. Um, another story is McAleese wins tax break for, for tax break for new memoirs. So uh, Mary McAleese's book, she's been given the artist's exemption. I don't think there's too, too much time needs to be spent on that. Uh, Johnson dumps Trump to woo Biden. So, yeah, Johnson obviously sees which way the wind is blown. I mean, the idea that Johnson has any kind of integrity or principle in his politics is uh, laughable to anybody. So, yeah, that's pretty much the front page of the Sunday Times. I'll go to Connor next uh, in a second, but 
Before I do, I just want to comment on that sick pay article because I had a quick read of it. And what's really interesting about it um, is that, yeah, we're all in favor of sick pay for workers. Um, I've spoken on this podcast several times about Lloyd's pharmacy workers and others in the pharmacy sector who deal with sick patients and vulnerable patients, but they have no sick pay schemes whatsoever. So therefore, they have to serve patients who have pneumonia um, or what, what, very, very bad illnesses. And those workers themselves might have an illness, which they pass on as well. But in the article, it says that they would, that what the government is looking to do is give sick pay to people after the sixth, sixth day of being unwell. Right. So think about that. Um, if somebody is sick for five days and they can't get paid. So what are they going to do? It doesn't, it doesn't serve any purpose because they're still going to have to go into work. The whole point of this sick pay scheme is so that they don't have to go to work and spread that illness. You think people would have copped that during the COVID crisis, that it's not helpful when workers have to go to work because of financial reasons. They need to keep the mortgage. They, you know, they need to pay bills, all the rest of it. So this scheme already looks like it's, it's, it's pointless because they're going to wait until after six days before an employer is obligated to give you any top up on your sick pay scheme. So anyway, pointless um, provisions from the government and they know it as well because most workers won't bother taking it. Claire, you want back in on that? Yeah, just like, yeah, I totally agree with you there, but I also think what jumped out most to me was that, I mean, we're in the middle of a pandemic right now. He's talking about looking at this, you know, next year, which I don't, I believe he just realizes that there was a lot of public backlash about them not supporting it during a pandemic. So this is a, this is a political move to make it look like it's something he's looking at. So, you know, there's not, you know, he's not getting the amount of pushback on it, but like, we need this in the middle of a pandemic, not, you know, a year and a half down the line. So yeah, I just don't believe it in the first place to even, you know, to even kind of have got into it too much. Okay, well, um, Connor, or, sorry, seriously, you want in on this? Yeah, just just very briefly, like I, I did read a story there in the Times. It was talking about these um, these graduated fines for breaching coronavirus regulations, so like not wearing masks or unnecessary journeys, which of course, like those things immediately will be open to, you know, they'll be implemented unfairly. Of course they will. Um, but like I, I kind of started laughing in a hopeless sort of way because you see this exact same logic coming into into play with um, you know environmental regulations. Instead of just putting in place the things we need, they're like, oh well, let's fine or tax this. Like so, instead of giving sick pay, instead of you know getting people into houses and homes, instead of you know um, getting people out of direct provision centres, they're like, I know we'll fine people who aren't wearing masks. And it is just like, is there evidence that? finding people like that masks not wearing a mask isn't costing enough is the reason people aren't wearing masks and then you know that kind of links in i saw this um there was another story where a retailer group are looking for um like a you know like the blue badges for disability parking spaces something similar to that that people can have to say i can actually you know i have a doctor you know a doctor has agreed that i can't wear a mask for x y and z because there are lots of people coming in claiming a particular uh, provision saying it causes them extreme distress not to wear a mask. So, you know, how, how are you going to even start regulating or finding people who can't wear masks before saying, right, well, you know, first let's clarify who can get away with not wearing a mask. But more than that, I just feel like, you know, there are so, there are so many easier ways, like, like the sick pay is a standout one instead of deciding to fine people for not wearing masks. It, it, it's um, yeah. You're talking a bit of sense there. 
that doesn't normally go down very well in political circles in Ireland. And just before I move on to Connor, and there is an article in the Irish Times on a virologist warning about the visor dangers, just seen as we're on the mask stuff. I don't know if anyone read this one, but uh, it says that, you know, the high grade N95 masks block 99% of aerosols uh, and surgical masks block 59% of aerosols, but face shields block only 2%. So they're saying that people walk around with these face shields uh, effectively. Someone's done a study on it. They're not helping at all. They're, 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 you're only blocking 2% of aerosols. So the, the chances of you either catching it or sharing it with the, with the visor on is, is very, very strong. But anyway, Connor, what have you noticed in the papers? Yeah, I mean, um, I just kind of focused in on it's some kind of budget stuff, it's some kind of COVID stuff, and it's on this whole thing about, you know, how do we pay for it? And um, there's a narrative being kind of built up again around, you know, but this is too, this is too expensive um, and we can't borrow and it's like 2008 all over again. Just one of the things that, that, kind, of, uh, that kind of jumped out at me uh, just on the argument is that Whereas now it, the, the, the government is saying that it's spending up to two kind of fifty billion on various kind of COVID kind of measures. Um, back in two thousand and eight to like twenty ten, it spent sixty four billion, bailing out less than two hundred developers. So the big difference now is that the, yes, there may be fifty billion being spent, but it's been spent on four and a half million people. Uh, whereas back in 2008, it was spent on less than 200 people, and it, and it bankrupt us. So there's a difference, and you could see some of the effect of actually having that money circulating in our society, and it's just driving finance crazy, it seems. The, this, the sheer disappointment in Pascal Donahue's voice when he had to admit that, it, that the tax take wasn't as low as he thought it was going to be, which meant that he can't actually justify just yet his kind of austerity kind of budget. I mean, it killed him. It absolutely, you, you could see it in his face. It just absolutely killed him to say that some quasi-Keynesian economics might be at play here. Um, so, I mean, on the, on the COVID stuff, um, I actually found myself in agreement with the Sunny Business Post kind of editorial. So maybe I'm on the same drugs as Trump. But like, um, but there was a really good line in it where <laughs> last week, and uh, like, like Leo has an opinion piece in the Sindo about you know how it breaks his heart to think of a lockdown happening again. But since last Sunday, the entire narrative has been clash of of, of personalities. So you have like Holohan and he's coming back in and he's the big boy and. And then it's Leo and blah, blah, blah. Like, so it's all very much like, it's an analysis based on, not on the facts, but basically taking what happens in a playground and then applying that to, to national uh, politics, which works for an article. And, and journalists loved in that because it's so easy for them. But what the Sunny Business Post said, it, it just really liked was that um, what hasn't been brought up is that all that Neffet said last Sunday was, go to level five of your plan, which is in place. And what Leo said was, we can't do that because our plan for level five is shit. So, like we, so we can't do that now. And what the Sunny Business Post you know, says is that, it, it, what the Tarnasset doesn't seem to grasp is that, for better or worse, Neffet had simply recommended that the country be moved to a level outlined within the government's own plan. 
if the government did not know how to answer, how to move to that plan, is no reflection on method. It's a, it's a reflection on their kind of level five kind of planning. Like Leo spent the entire week saying that we don't actually have a plan for level five, we just kind of put it down. And again, hasn't been part of the all, you know, of the overall, you know, of the overall analysis. The Sindo takes a different take and says that, um, that people are exhausted, feel apathetic and are demotivated and don't want another kind of lockdown. Now, what's surprising about this is that we keep on hearing about how when it comes to COVID, we should have an evidence-based kind of analysis, you know, and we shouldn't have this thing around kind of fake news and have it based on the facts. Well, the only facts that have been done kind of so far was Amorok did a survey for the HSE and one of them was that two-thirds of people would actually be more supportive, would be kind of supportive of greater lockdown measures if it meant actually saving lives and actually kind of trying to kind of get on top of all of this. They've ignored all that evidence, which is the only evidence we have in this. There was a survey done. There was a reasonable analysis done of that. So of the evidence we have, it seems that actually people would be supportive of kind of greater measures if they actually had a good kind of result. The Sindo just ignores that and says, no, it would be terrible. And people, the, the people, you know, that abstract kind of notion of the people just wouldn't be, you know, if, you know can afford this. And then um, finally on the, on the COVID thing, um, yeah, it's, it's Leo just like, just realizing that there will be a kind of circuit break as they're calling it, in, in like 10 days' time anyway. So having had his little rant and like thrown his kind of, his rattle out of the pram, he now wants dinner, you know? So, I mean, you know, and, you know, you, you know, these are the things, so feed me now. I mean, I could go on more, but I'm just like, I, I am conscious that I've, I, I, I've gotten like five minutes there, which is probably kind of too much for any sane person to take up of like my rants. Well, we'll take but, a break from you just for yeah, a Yeah, please do, because, and, you know, because next on my list is like Dan O'Brien, and I'll need a full hour for that one. <laughs> uh, Claire, you wanted in on that one. Yeah, just, I suppose, on the COVID. I mean, we, you know, it's almost, well, it is a week. It's a week today from the, the Nefit leak, and I say leak, inverted comments, that comments there, because most of the discourse around the past week has actually been around who leaked the letter, you know, and it, first of all, how distracting it is, but also I think anybody, anybody I've heard talking about this has, you know, looked at the fact that when the letter was leaked in the first place, it was leaked with uh, comments from government sources, not Neffet sources. And the only person that this actually, like this doesn't benefit Neffet. Neffet aren't publicly elected. They, you know, public, they're scientists. Public opinion doesn't really, doesn't matter to them. You know, they're, they're working off the evidence and they're working off, um, their own expertise it is the government who then have to take that and mix it with the you know social economic reasoning and all the rest um, and that's where the political decisions come in so i just think first of all it's farcical to think that nefit were the ones who leaked this letter um and on the off chance that they did the only reason i could see for that would be because the government wouldn't be listening to them in the first place so i think any negativity directed towards uh Nefa is just shows that the politicizing is coming in so deep now. It shows where people's priorities actually lie. Um and and also, I mean, we're a week down the line now and we have a thousand and twelve cases yesterday, uh just just in the south, and then we had another nine hundred and two up north. So like I just think that I to I totally agree with Connor. The reason that the, there was such a 
backlash towards the suggestion of level five is because the government aren't actually prepared to go back to those social supports. And I think Sarah made a good point before we came on that she might want to uh, get into is the fact that, well, who, who are those social supports actually helping in the first place? I know Connor wants in here now forced, but I think that's, yeah, that's an even wider conversation around that. Yeah, it's just one kind of very small point. Ed, did people see the uh, Gavin Riley screenshot of his of his WhatsApp with Leo? No, no. Oh, it's fucking hilarious. Um, he was he was leaking the um, uh, the no, he had uh, he put up on Twitter um his like screenshot of him kind of filming the muggle-headed Ray kind of rant uh there last week. The, the the kind of generic Healy Ray rant that he gives on every time. But like he was in true, but as he was filming it on his phone, a WhatsApp message kind of it popped up from Leo <laughs> where he was giving out about a method. So, um, so Gavin Riley didn't cop it until after he had, he had put it up. He immediately kind of put it down and it's still up there. So we talk about leaks. We know for a fact anyway that... <laughs> That Leo has been WhatsApping Gavin Riley about kind of Neffet and like just bitching about it, just like just really and truly like schoolyard kind of stuff. Like so, just on that point about kind of leaks, like it wasn't Tony Houlihan who 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 like popped up saying that Leo c word. You know, like, I mean, was, I, do, I do like in know. fairness. Like- I do think, you know, politicians, journalists have to have those relationships with politicians to get the oh, information. Oh, yeah, I know, Other, yeah. But, but that's it. I, have, I, didn't even, I didn't even know about that. That's mm-hmm. brilliant. It's still on Twitter. Like, someone kind of screen grabbed it, so it's still up there. Seriously, do you um, want to on this one? Yeah, just on the, on the COVID there, there was a tiny piece by Peter Klusky in The Times where it was just taught, like, it's, you know, it's only an inch or two. Um, but it was just talking about the, the effects on the brain of COVID. And it, it happens to me all the time and, and you can see it happening society-wide is you kind of, you think, oh yeah, but, you know, young people aren't affected as much. And we're told this, like you're constantly said, oh, well, you know, you protect the vulnerable. But I, I think that's almost, you know, it's almost irrelevant when you're talking about a disease where we don't know the long-term effects. Um, and I get like, there was a gosser on uh, the news there during the week at some stage, he was 17 and he had just had to learn how to walk again after his nerves had been so badly damaged. And so I think, you know, there's, there's this surety kind of injected into the language around COVID about, oh, well, you know, the vulnerable uh, need to isolate and be protected and the rest of us need to go out and prop up the economy. And then I start thinking like, Jesus, like imagine losing the ability to walk or imagine in, you know, a year starting to have hallucinations and you know i've just read these anecdotally from a group in the u.s where these long covid people who have survived quite asymptomatic covid have gotten together and are just you know talking about all these long-term effects and i feel that that's just yeah we're we are still all operating or in even even in the newspapers it's kind of said oh well you know young people are getting it but they're not at risk or they're not as at higher risk of death but then i think like you know what are we setting ourselves up for to think like that yeah yeah no it's uh it can be quite frightening actually and so some of the papers a few weeks ago had a report of 72 percent. i think it, it was the figure of people who have had covid have ongoing heart problems like um and i i actually met a friend of mine's mother there last week she she had covid back in march at the start and she um 
she and her partner both had it. Uh, and she said it was the worst thing that's ever happened to her, that she was um, really drained of energy. She still doesn't feel up to, you know, going shopping and doing a lot of things. But importantly, she got a test done for the antibodies two weeks ago and the test just came back and she doesn't have any antibodies. So she can catch it all over again. So this is the frightening thing. We still don't know an awful lot about this thing whatsoever. But before we move on, and I'll go to you next, Claire, in a second, but um, I think the best article I read all week and, and probably for a few months, because there's a lot of noise about this issue. Um, and even in the same newspapers, there's like one article saying one thing and then a minute later, you know, a page later, there's a contradiction of it. But the, there's Dr. Gabriel Scali, uh, president of the epidemiology, Epidemiology and Public Health at the Royal Society of Medicine in London has a really good article about Ireland because um, Gabriel is, is, is obviously Irish. Um, talking about how it is it's slightly surreal to look back only three months to when for a period the daily number of new infections was in the teens in the Republic of Ireland and in single figures in Northern Ireland. And at that point, it was a real opportunity to fully suppress the virus across the whole island and take the necessary action to prevent its reintroduction. That would have enabled and almost completely lifted social restrictions and importantly, would have allowed the economy to operate as normal. So when business owners are looking at this, and, and trying to figure out who to blame, and they're looking at house parties and all the rest of it. This article is one that they should all read because it goes into it and says, when you're dealing with a deadly infectious disease, delaying the decision only multiplies the size of the problem uh, that will eventually have to be faced. It also means that measures you need to take later on will probably have to be more intensive and remain in place for considerably longer time. But anyway, just to get to the end of, of, of the article, it says about New Zealand and other islands that have dealt with this and how we had the capacity to deal with this as an island. And the greatest, the greatest benefit that Ireland has is, is the stretch of water around us. And it, what, what, what's mentioned is that Varadkar, on his rebuke to uh, Tony Houlihan last week, was saying, you know, we can't do anything with the island because of Northern Ireland and people will be crossing the border and bringing the disease down and all the rest of it. It, it, the, the article explains that the Isle of Man has that exact same restrictions. The United Kingdom does allow people, you know, d devolve powers on this sort of stuff. So they could have closed it down and closed the whole island down. But instead, as we read out in two weeks ago, 189,000 passengers came through Dublin Airport. Only 30,000 of them received a phone call uh, to check in on them to see if they were doing the 14-day um, quarantine period. And I think, seriously, you wanted to talk later on about airlines. And this is what the crucial part of this article is perhaps the biggest barrier to effective public health measures is the power and influence of the airline and international tourist industries and and the article talks about the choices to be made between the lockdown now or literally having people die because we don't have as we all know enough icu beds we don't have enough investment in our healthcare service and that's um, that it, the article really gets to the heart of all of the problems that we have. Um, Claire, I don't know if we want to move on or you want to comment on any of that stuff. I just wanted to touch before we leave COVID um, on the, the Hugh O'Connell article on Stephen Donnelly. It is absolutely scathing. Um, I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it goes on for a couple of pages, but I just want to read out a little bit of it about O'Connell talks to a couple of the, um, he says he, he spoke to over a dozen ministers, TDs and officials um, anonymously but it says they paint a picture of a health minister who's overly sensitive to criticism, lacking an empathy, whose condescending approach has alienated and annoyed party and coalition colleagues, department officials and opposition TDs. I mean, to be honest, pissing off all the people in government wouldn't really bother me. Um, you know, but it's the, I think the, the, the public are having the same reaction to him. And it's the, we've seen 
mess after mess. And I think Duncan Smith called it a calamity in the doll during the week. And then uh, Donnelly went back at him over his language. And it's just the pettiness that this stuff is descending into. And it's like that. There's actually been very, up until the past couple of days, there's been very little focus on the fact that our ICU numbers haven't actually grown over the past six months. You know, that um, investment in public service, all the talk we had at the start, we haven't had massive it change in how we invest or any attempts to reorganize or restructure or anything like that but yeah just i wanted to touch on that that is a particularly scathing um article you know a huge amount of work went in to, to pretty much take stephen donnelly down there and i just feel like the fact that uh michael martin had to come out and actually 101 or 102 days into government say that he had faith in him um it's just another one of these things you think could bring the government down yeah and i know we touched on it earlier on uh, about the budget i'm, I'm going to move on to the budget um, and the question mark really is, is there, any, is there any point in having a budget, really? Because this year, as we know, everything has changed. And it's like they assume everything is going to remain as it currently is. We, we're fluctuating all over the place here with, with, the, with the COVID stuff and with other bits and pieces. But, Connor, do you want to come in quickly on that and, and tell us what, what, what's going on with the budget? Yeah, I mean, like um, on the front page of the Can Business Post, they talk around, you know, that there's going to be an extra four billion for for health. So that's one of the things in which you say, which is a great kind of headline figure, and it is needed. But um, what would the thing that would that jumps into my head anytime I hear about kind of more money being spent is well, who's the beneficiary of it? Uh, Sarsha was saying something there just prior to the start of the show about um, Hibernia Reach and about how. There's a very good argument that has been made that a lot of, of the PUP payments that have been made have just been funneled into landlords and into kind of commercial landlords and into insurance companies and, and like into banks. And, and the conduit has been the PUP kind of payment. Um, there's an argument to, to be made that, that a not insubstantial part of the HSC operates that way as well in that public money is used and use the health system to funnel that public money into, into private hands. Now, what they do say in, in the Sunny Business Post is that they are investing structurally, it seems to be, which is what needs to be happened. So you talk about more beds, they don't really say whether that's more staff, but you are talking about 300 more consultants. Like the modus operandi of, of this state, from what I can see anyway, is that you spend money to get you through the problem that's there at the time, but don't spend money that would actually bring any kind of structural change. So you spend money that will, that's all kind of a current account kind of spending. You hire uh, nurses or staff on like temp kind of contracts because you don't want to actually have a fully functioning uh, public healthcare system because that would, that would then make the functioning of like private hospitals um, more or less re redundant so we don't know whether that's what's happening and i think kind of more work has to be done that as well now on the point around kind of you know how do we pay for this which is, which is now back up again uh, leo has been running kind of with this uh, there's a, two really funny articles by in in the business post and in in the sindo um uh, on this one is by uh, vincent boland um who you know who who, who talks about uh, the U.S. kind of debt, and I'll come back on later, but I'll start with, uh, with Dan O'Brien. Good old Dan O'Brien. Dan O'Brien is a great sense of, like, the man has a career which just amazes me. 
it just amazes me how, you know, he has a career. Like, like if he can make it, anyone can. I think that should be just the kind of poster for him. He's a guy who back in 2005 said that Bertie Hearn should be made uh, sec gen of the UN because he has great skills. Um, in 2008, he said that the global convention crisis was, it was overblown. You know what I mean? Like, you know, and here he is kind of 15 years later, now giving us his marvelous kind of insight on like uh, central bank debt. He talked about the ECB debt and saying how we shouldn't borrow. And we shouldn't borrow at the moment because we're borrowing too much. And he says that, you know, that the, e, that the ECB, there was panic in Europe last week because the ECB's um, debts have gone from $4.7 trillion up to a mind-boggling, quote, mind-boggling $6.7 trillion. Now, the $6.7 trillion works out at around 53% of the Eurozone GDP, Right? That means that the ECB has debts that equate to 53% of the GDP of the Eurozone kind of countries. The Bank of Japan, it's 157%, the Declaration Central Bank. Canada, it's 252%. Uh, Australia is 140%. Uh, South Korea is 142%. South Africa is 77%. The Bank of England is 378% greater than the British kind of GDP. The ECB is actually at the lower scale of debts in terms of what kind of central bank holdings have, even in terms, not even kind of internationally, even in terms of the G7 and both Canada and Australia, they're all part of that. The US Fed is like 20%, but the Fed is a different beast and the dollar is a different beast. The ECB could actually issue another six trillion in debt, and its ratio to the GDP of the eurozone would still be lower than in than in Japan. Six point seven trillion could issue more in brand new kind of debt that would pay for without a doubt would and like like something like ten percent of that could pay for a for a eurozone green new deal. That's it. That's your green new deal. That's our transfer over in like 10 years to completely zero carbon economy as well. And this guy, and I've, I've, I've chosen my words carefully, this guy says that 6.7 trillion is like mind boggling. In, in, in what universe in terms of like central banks is 6.7 trillion mind boggling? You know what I mean? Like, you know, and then he puts out this stuff and it sounds like we can't borrow. The IMF came out there last week and said it is incumbent on all industrialized or kind of so-called kind of first world states to borrow like crazy now and invest. Spain announced there last week that that's what it's going to do. It's going to borrow more and have a green-led structural investment, which is what we should be doing here. A green-led industrial investment. And that lies on to the second point I make. I, I know that I've been talking a lot, but just, just, it does kind of feed into that, that. That when you talk about we need to save the economy, well, the question that jumps out at me is that, well, that kind of, oh, the point really is that they, what they're really talking about is that we need to save the way things are done here. That's what they're talking about. They're not talking about saving the 
<coughs> economy. Like unemployment is like artificial. That's a whole day's work anyway. Um, but we're trying to save the way things are done here. And there's some great articles in the various kind of newspapers about how things are done here. And I'll very quickly go through them. So you have an article in the Sunday Business Post about how motor insurance firms made profits of 130 million uh, in, in like 2018. Um, we have um, Heinz seeks uh, to build up to 1,000 um, apartments in, in Liquidity Valley. And these are um, buy to let ones. They're not for people then to buy. So we can see that, you know, that's part of the whole kind of turn people into renters. Um, there's another one, uh, Kuchin Kuna Holdings um, have abandoned their plan for a six-story hotel in like Donnybrook and they're going to turn it into build uh, to rent kind of apartment blocks. So again, more kind of build to rent. And then there's an article about how the housing agency has built 218 homes on sites with room for 3,370. Because you start building on public housing, that may affect the buy-to-let um, model that is being pushed and has been pushed by this state, including NAMA. NAMA were the first ones to really kind of push this back in 2011, kind of 2012. And, and John Morden, he was, he was the former head. He was a former... Uh, uh, you know, juice bar, a manager in, in the south of France, who then ended up as a sec gen of the Department of Finance and is now currently has kind of reinvented him, himself as the savior of, 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 of like Limerick City. They all pushed for this buy to let kind of model being kind of brought in here. So while they're talking about saving the economy, they're talking about saving that aspect of it which is one where insurance companies, landlords, and like developers can still make money instead of actually doing something which, which needs to be done, which is a grand scale green investment for a truly transformative, a just transition role. Which, which leads me perfectly on to ask Saoirse because um, there's two things, I suppose, within one week of each other here. There's the publication of the climate bill, and then there's the uh, budget that's coming up um, and Daniel Murray in the Sunday Business Post, you know, he, he hits the nail on the head in some certain parts of the article. He's doing some really good work, by the way, um, on data centers and other issues that he's been covering for a while. But he's saying about the, the climate bill doesn't actually do anything. Um, like it, 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 it's, there's no tangible uh, aspects to it. That, but, but, but what's your reflections on it so far from what you've seen? Um, well, I suppose I would agree with him in that like it very clearly does not mention a just transition at all. And I do think there's a way we could transform our society to be um, carbon neutral while still maintaining and, and reinforcing and creating new inequalities. So I think that's a big, like I do think, you know, you hear some people say, oh, we won't make it, you know, we won't get to net zero. I think we could, but I think it could also be awful. Um, and so I think it has to be like front and center, the idea that there will be, like I, I think at one point in, um, in the bill, there was a reference to, uh, with regards to climate justice, which is pretty weak, um, but there's no mention of a just transition. And even, even within that, they have removed the term achieve. So the government does not have to pursue and achieve these aims has to pursue them 
So even the 2015 Fine Gael led piece of legislation um, had achievement written into it. So it, like it's it's pretty weak in that it, I think it has left a lot of get out budgets for itself. Um, it's even like I saw I saw a mention of like emerging technologies, which is a red flag. Like we are so late to be hoping for some sort of like you know moon base kind of whatever they're going to do with it and a lot of those emerging technologies they're talking about will be as connor was talking about ways to maintain certain industries earning so like if you look at any sort of carbon capture they're like and then we will pay oil companies loads to store all the stored carbon in used up oil wells um and it really like when you think about what's at stake you just do not we don't have time to be like being like, oh yeah, so they'll come up with some really smart and sciencey tech, like a lot of tech bros sitting around being like, oh yeah, what if we just, you know, magic, do like not change anything and just sort of magic our solution away with some sort of super, you know, tech nonsense. Um, so I was really disappointed to see emerging technologies in that climate bill, but I did see Jennifer Whitmore had been pushing a lot for including nature-based solutions. Um, now, like obviously it doesn't have specific policies in the bill so the enactment of it will be really where it, it fails or not and it I did see you know a few like in the minister's opinion which is a terrible idea I think um, because you know sure what minister is that like then that that puts it all down to one constituency and the government formation talks like deciding that this particular person is going to be like the right person to do this um but just on that i did notice there was a lot in a lot of the papers and it's been it's been there for the last you know since this covid started whatever eight months is the airline industries um and talking about the airlines failing and what's really interesting is the narrative is not evolving at all and this also touches up on something that connor was saying that we have quite a reactive approach to things here um so there was one piece in the examiner by Owen English and he was talking about the financial support packages needed for Cork and Dublin airport. Um, and if, if they're to have a, a chance at, you know, attracting flights back after this coronavirus, you know, we need to make sure we give them loads of money now. And just below that, actually, there was another piece on the scale of the aviation crisis. And it was talking about, it mentioned one plane left, I think it was to Lanzarote with nine people on it out of 180 seats. And like, it's all dressed up in this kind of, oh, we must save the worker because we, the airline industry, care so much about the workers. Um, but in reality, like the idea that we would sink money into saving this industry that does need to be substantially dismantled anyway, if we're like, so say we prop up the airline industry and in five years, it's back to where it was. Um, it, like, we don't have emission space for that anyway. So it's 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 not a good sign to me that the government are not saying okay how can we bail out the worker whilst you know taking this opportunity to significantly downsize the amount of air traffic um and it's it's really interesting because from the very beginning there's been airline lobbyists on and they have stuck to their message and like that it just it hasn't evolved at all like a lot of the pieces you see in papers are just repeating these talking points um, and not saying, well, does it serve us all to, you know, prop up the airline industry and keep it, you know, 
sink a load of money into it when it really needs to be dismantled anyway. Um, and, you know, if, if that's if that's not even talk, being talked about, you know, while the airline industry is in massive contraction and may not recover for four or five years, and that's not yet been talked about, it doesn't bode well. Like, it seems so obvious, doesn't it? I mean, the airline, we've been talking about this for a while on, on the show, the airline industry, like Ryanair, for instance, is um, the only non-coal-fired power plant in the top 10 emitters in Europe. Like, they are destroying the planet. And yet we're, again, and it is through the whole um, lobbying thing, you know, airline lobby, you mentioned it there, and immediately what sprung to mind was tobacco. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's instinctive. I'm going, there. the new tobacco. They're, every single week that we've been on this show, Ryanair have had a press release that was regurgitated in one of the newspapers at the very least. And in many of the newspapers, every single week, Ryanair have had a say on, on something. And that, that's a, a level of power that's disproportionate to any other industry, if you ask me, with very few other industries. Um, but yeah, just, I've got to go to Claire next, actually, before I come in on some of the budgetary stuff. Claire, you wanted in on that? No, I was about to the budgetary stuff, but I just think it's very emblematic of the whole, where we are now in COVID in general, instead of looking at things in terms of how can we reimagine the world, it's how can we get back to normal? Just how can we get back to how things were? Instead of looking at well, I mean, we, we've talked about this as well, that COVID didn't really highlight anything to anybody that was working in these areas or that's been talking about this stuff for a long time, like in terms of the level of inequality that was there. But it has really made it impossible to ignore for everybody else. So, it's, I mean, what has to happen for people to be able to look and say, right, we need a new way of living and we need a new way of organising the world. But um, I do find it disappointing just how, I don't know if it's how powerful the lobbyists are or just how willing we as people and the media and the you know society in general you know wants to get back to normal and so was willing to accept that and just just you know get on with things instead of challenging it well i mean the biggest thing and i'll come to connor next on this one quickly but the biggest thing that that, that i've seen front page of the irish times here again is about um the vat cuts like in the budget the expectation that the hospitality sector is again going to get a vat cut uh from uh, it's it's 12 and a half I think it's 13% down to 9%, uh, which they got in 2011. And like, it's like we've learned no lessons. It's let's, let's apply a framework that we did in 2010, 11, and just apply it now and everything will be fine. We'll be back to normal soon enough. And in reality, over 6 billion euros was lost on that tax cut that they gave to one really powerful lobbying sector. But we've given an even bigger one from the 23% down to 21% in terms of that. Right at the wrong time, when spending in grocery outlets is is still there and we need to raise revenue we gave a tax cut so that people would spend more uh, or had the capacity to spend more when they didn't need to but it, it's it's just it's a lost revenue at a time when they're talking about we need you know we're not gonna we don't want to borrow or you know how are we going to pay for all of this stuff and they're giving tax cuts this whole pro-cyclical economic policy is is mental but connor i don't know if you want to come in on any of that stuff about what we expect to see i saw some of the articles saying uh, and actually one of the articles particularly about Sinn fein uh, it says here doherty defends Sinn fein plans to hike taxes on multinationals like i mean even the way it's framed by the headline you know uh, he has to defend the, the the demand to raise taxes on multinationals. I don't know if you have any reflections on any of that stuff. Yeah, I mean, um, I saw that all right, and uh, it's it's extremely kind of it's extremely kind of disingenuous because uh, what Sinn Fein have done is that it's actually quite modest, and you know it's uh, they're they're closing down a tax on loophole which uh, which should be closed anyway, you know, um, so and they've 
they've somehow kind of spun this into um, that that Sinn Féin are going to tax uh, multinationals out of existence. Um, like, they're just kind of quite modest, even what kind of Sinn Féin are doing, you know? But, like, um, in terms of the budget itself, I mean, like, it is a question as to whether it's even kind of, is there any point in actually doing one? Because it does kind of give that view that, or, or that kind of uh, lie, that um, this is a glitch, we'll get over this in three months' time, and we get back then to normal. Um, the VAT thing is just crazy. It's absolutely kind of crazy. Um, because, um, again, it's, it's that kind of view, very simplistic of kind of supply and demand. They seem to be thinking that, that, that the reason why there's nobody in like restaurants or in pubs is that people are just kind of holding back their savings and actually want to go out and, and do things. There's a shutdown. The, the state is telling businesses, do not open. So what needs to be done there is that, well, what are the fixed costs of those businesses, which they have to pay, whether they're open or closed, and how do we tackle that? That's what should be done. But then that would mean tackling the three largest kind of uh, drains on, on like businesses, which is insurance costs, uh, commercial rates, and, um, and, and rents, you know? But these are two of them are very highly protected uh, groups, you know, in, 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 you know, in the Garish society. So there's no move against, you know, insurance costs. There's no, you know, there's no move really against kind of commercial rents or, or even loans, you know. I mean, there was a moratorium then on that. Unless you tackle the fixed costs of those businesses, VAT cut is not going to make any difference because it's not like people want to go out and shop and they are, you know, go to a restaurant but can't. They can't because that's the health kind of stuff that is going on. It's a different dynamic than the one that has been kind of put forward. But why take on kind of landlords? I mean, you know, why take on insurance companies, you know? I mean, best just to give a kind of VAT cut, which won't actually make kind of any difference. Except for loss of revenue. Seriously? Yeah. On that, I was just going to say, did you see the story about FBD being taken to the um, high court? It was a test case being brought against it by a couple of pubs because despite there being a clause in their insurance that indemnifies the owner if, if forced closure due to infectious disease in the premises or within 25 miles, FBD are claiming that because there was no outbreaks on the premises or in the area, like in the immediate area, they're not paying out the insurance, which also just like brings to mind, like what is the actual point of these companies? Like they just, if it's constantly, they're like, oh yeah, you did that, but no, we're not going to pay you. You're like, like God, it's I hate paying insurance. Um, <laughs> but on that, like you, know, it just seems so obvious. But property ownership and and renting does seem to have this almost like um. Uh, almost semi-divine status in Ireland like it seems obvious that if you know if a landlord's only income was rent you would just freeze rent and put them on the PUP payment mm. you know like exactly. just but, but it's never seen that way so by mm. doing they admit that they know that being a landlord is not a job so if that's the case then are they just admitting that yes if you're rich and you own that you can just continue to take a huge proportion of the PUP payments like I would love to see some figures on that on how much 
of these income supports ended up in big uh, like rental companies or private landlords um you know how much of these subsidies just ended up there altogether you know it, it's it's in Dublin, it would be almost all of it because the rents are above what you're getting from the PUP payment in many instances, which is only 350 quid, you know, work that out at about 1400 or so a month. And the average rent in Dublin is about 1800 So, yeah. You, but it's, you, not, it's also, it's not just PUP that was implemented, like rent supports were massively increased. The, the parameters for being able to, you know, access them were um, opened up and, you know, uh, reduced so like it's not just pup it's actually there's a whole range of social supports that have been opened up to people that weren't previously you know receiving them that are also making their way into the pockets of private companies yeah, yeah. All right. okay so we're all agreed the budget is pointless uh <laughs> well no no I, I wouldn't say it's 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 pointless but like it is kind of it it, it is kind of put forward a bit of a myth that that this is a glitch that this is just bigger over this hump and then we go back then to normal, as if normal was working anyway. Yeah. You yeah. know, uh, you know. So, him. so you know. So, and like they will spend billions, but unless that is spent on any kind of structural change, yeah. then then those kind of underlying kind of problems just won't be addressed. In that way, it's a bit kind of futile. You know. What what frustrates me what frustrates me more um, in anticipation of the budget is that. In terms, you know, compared to previous budgets, it probably won't seem that bad. But when you look at what, what's like, again, what we've learned over the past couple of months, what has been impossible to ignore, what if heading into any kind of budget, we should be looking at massive investment and structural change. So it's quite frustrating that I know a lot of this is going to be spent quite positively. It's not going to seem negative because, you know, compared to previous budgets, but it's not going to be anywhere near what we should be actually be looking at in terms of what we've seen over the past six months. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Claire, Claire, you have another few stories there. Do you want to get through a couple of them? Uh, yeah, so one was, um, I suppose we tend to look a lot on, on this show about what's not been reported or how things are being reported. There was an exam, uh, there was an examiner article from Mick Clifford about the, the protest yesterday at the Dáil. Um, and what really, it, it was very both sides in it. You know, it was kind of like, oh, it was the it was the, the fascists and the anti-fascists, as if like those two things are in any way the same. Um, it, 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 Mick talks about how they were both similarly dressed and how they, you know, shouted slurs at each other. And um, and it just, it, it goes all the way down. It it associates, um, it, says some, it talks about the anti-fascists and says, you know, some of their number have associations with disaffected so-called Republican outfits. You know, like really just trying to kind of, um, undermine anti-fascism in general I found but the most worrying thing you I found about Tina Fall there by any chance no? <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm guessing that's what it is but what really frustrated me was how we talked about so like basically this the whole thing was was the premise of it was a national party meeting you know it wasn't it was portrayed as an anti-mask and a you know an anti-government thing but it was a national party demonstration and um, how he talks about Justin Barrett in the article is really worrying um, you know, it, the party leader Justin Barrett is a veteran of various causes now, that's all he says. He doesn't go into those causes. He doesn't talk about how he was, um, you know, happy to share stages with members of the SS, you know, how he was happy to go to, to fascist and Nazi uh, conferences, you know, in the, in the 90s, 80s, 90s and 80s, how he, how he was a leader of youth defence, um, how he has literally called for doctors who perform abortions to be, to be murdered, you know, like, the frame of that language that he's a veteran of various causes to people that don't know who Justin Barrett is 
could read that and think he's a you know a social justice warrior <laughs> like this is the kind of language that this article has thrown out there um he also says he arrived dressed in a suit and short and tie the only person so attired in the whole gathering now he doesn't go on to talk about how in far-right movements that kind of um where the wearing of suits is actually a tool it's actually a tool to how they you know become respectable and how they actually get into the mainstream um and it's yeah i just found the whole thing really really disappointing um he actually goes on to say that mr barrett and some of his colleagues took no part whatsoever in the violence and yeah like and then he goes on to talk about the, the actual protesters you know that uh nazi scum off our streets or the antifa or whatever they were pedo scum off our streets roared back the nationalists so it's, it's acting like the protesters on both sides are the same um and as if justin barrett is somehow above all of that and didn't get involved in that. and i just find it so worrying that a a journalist like mick clifford who has been around so long um could either not know who justin barrett is not know the actual consequences of platforming someone like justin barrett or or not highlighting you know the dangers of his message like he he didn't talk about the content of his speech yesterday he didn't talk about um how he spoke about hazel chu uh the, the lord mayor who receives daily racist abuse and you know some of that has been from justin barrett himself he didn't talk about how he spoke about michael martin and how he joked about how he couldn't he basically talked you know he, he talked about how people like him in the past uh came to their end but how he wouldn't joke about that because the guards you know he didn't want to be accused of inciting violence while he you know very clearly so incited violence like it's to knock it into the context content of that speech and yet talk about the you know what was going on around it it's just it's a real worry because i think i had thought we were kind of past that now with journalism that there was an un, there was an agreement that journalists were gonna have to kind of take this fight there, i know like we had if uh more on the show a couple of weeks ago and she talked about how they didn't want to give them oxygen they didn't want to give the fascist oxygen but we're so past that now and we can't have journalists particularly people like mick clifford who have a you know a good reputation i have taken issue with a lot of things Mick has said in the past I find them quite questionable on a, on a couple of things but this is really worrying because it actually it, it portrays Justin Barrett as somehow respectable and acceptable um, and the protesters are the problem and as if the protesters are equally to blame yeah we, we have this whole thing of you know the fascists they want to kill the vulnerable uh, the migrants the asylum seekers all those and then the anti-fascists who want to stop them uh, from killing yeah. people and Jesus they're as bad as each other aren't they it's awful plague on both your houses yeah <laughs> I don't know. Seriously, do you have any other stories you want to touch on there? Um, well, it's not a story, and it might be a bit uh, obvious to everybody, but for like, it's been the first time in I don't know how long I've bought paper newspapers. But what I couldn't get over, and this is like, it's a bit silly, really, is um, both the Examiner and the Times Sports. You would honestly think there was only a single solitary gender that played sports. In 20 pages in the Examiner, sports section there was maybe four little pieces on any woman at all and in eight pages in the times all i could find now i didn't like i didn't read every single one but there was two inches on a, a female rower i think i was like well, has women's sports just stopped and it's not just that like they'll pull out these people who played like football in the 70s and they'll do a two-page spread on what they're at now and you're like really you couldn't find anything else to write about but Anyway, it's not very important. I was just I was just surprised at how like on the nose it was. 
Well, I, th- I think it is important. I, I do think, uh, like, you see women's football team trying to fight for equal pay with the, with the men's football team, which is minuscule payments that they'd be getting in comparison to, to, to what they get from their clubs over in the UK, the men, that is. And they have to battle and fight for it. And, like, the FAI were paying, as we know, their CEO 400 grand a year and the women who are actually out there doing the business weren't getting anything. Like it's, it's just, uh, and there's a reason for it. It's part of it is that the media completely ignores, or because uh, I'm big into sports, I, I do tend to um, read the, the, the sports pages and all the rest of it. But uh, yeah, it, it's just assumed that it's all men's stuff in there. Connor, I don't know. Do you have any other stories you want to come in before we yeah, wrap? Yeah, just some kind of, uh, you know, kind of very small ones. Again, just like, it's always great kind of buying kind of, physical kind of newspapers, you know, and actually kind of, and actually kind of going through them. And, and what kind of jumped at me was this image here. It's a period that it's a podcast, but it's an image here of kind of Richard Curran giving his best Zoolander pout, which I absolutely loved. Um, can people see it there? Can they actually see his blue steel pout? Uh, <laughs> see it there? Look at that. Okay, look so at, look at that guy. Look at him. There you go. There's a man who's going to set up a school for kids who can't read so good. You know, look at them there, like, you know. Um, then there's Alan Shatter um, going for his best golden, a, a, a golden, his best kind of golden kind of clerical award, where he makes the Seamus Wolf um, story about himself. And he says, as AG, did Wolf consider my lack of a fair hearing? Because that's what people are thinking about uh, when it comes to the Chambers Wolf story is, Jesus, how was, how was Alan Shatter kind of treated? You know what I mean? Like, and he gets an entire article out of this forever. It's a perfect, it's a perfect glow. He, yeah, he's on kind of golden cleric um, on it. Just two more kind of short ones. Yeah. There's, an, there's an interesting piece here from a new startup dynamic genius, which Ireland seems to produce... Uh, like more kind of a, a more kind of volume of than Guinness, and uh, it's he's he's like Bobby Healy, and his advice to entrepreneurs who are who are starting off is one: if things aren't working, stay positive. But if they aren't working, shut the, shut the business down if it's not working, and do something else. Well, thank you. That's uh, thank you for your insight. Um, and then his last one was: um, don't go to college. Don't go to university what you should do is learn on the fly learn as you go raise 10 million dollars and hire a load of people and just go for it it's great cheers you know and um you know this wonderful sage kind of advice and then finally the last story that, that jumped out at me was i just mentioned kind of you know uh, hazel chu she was asked about she was asked by the sindo about rumors that she uh, about rumors that she might be jumping ship to the Sock Dems. And she was asked about it, and her statement said, you can never rule these things out. So, I, I don't, <laughs> know, if I was, think, I don't like, know if that was loaded, because like, seriously, seriously, have like, you got any intentions of joining the Sock Dems? <laughs> but she never ruled things out. And well, just like, 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 it's gas because like normally you'd say, I've no comment, or I don't want to comment on that. She comes out, well, you never ruled things out. <laughs> I don't know why. Make, she, I don't. I think she'd be a fool not to. Like, I think she'd be a fool not to if she's looking at it in terms of electoral success in the future. Yeah. Like, why would you lock yourselves in a cabin on that ship? Um, you know. And also, I think I do think a lot of the like it's it's no, you know, it's no secret that um, 
she wasn't run in Dublin Bay South, even though she like topped the poll by a massive majority in her council ward. Um, but also, you know, both her and Patrick Costello were quite anti-programme for government and anti-coalition. And, you know, you, you've seen it in how the party has dealt with those who stayed on who were anti-coalition. They, it was just a big middle finger, really. Like, they didn't give Nasa Hurrigan, of all people, um, any sort of role. And she is extremely, extremely competent. And, you know, there was no, there was clearly no effort made to, you know, make these people vested in this government. So, like, I wouldn't be surprised if she did. I, I would be shocked if, they end, if she ended up staying, if her and Patrick ended up staying. I don't know why they would. Um, and I think they're both quite competent and capable and to be honest are are so much better than you know some of the things that the Green Party has been doing in government at the moment so I'd be actually surprised if they stayed if we're having this conversation in four years and they're still in the Greens Yeah, I mean yeah. I agree, I think as well, I think that statement would make me question who leaked that story in the first place um, because for the chair of a party like as well as um, the Lord Mayor Hazel is the chair of the Green Party like to come out with a statement like that I love it, I loved it when I read it and um, I just thought it was hilarious I, I just thought it was very Hazel as well like uh, oh, no. great quality like um, I do think that uh, the point about her actual constituency is what's most important though because for her not to have been around when she topped, I think she got the highest council uh maybe in the country or council percentage in the country or something like that and I think she got the same number of votes or close that Eamon actually had got in the general so like she her council take alone could have got her in on the second seat which is you know and you know Eamon's not going anywhere I don't think even if the party tanks but um yeah I thought I found that was a funny one I have a couple of stories I just want to touch on very briefly before we uh move on or wrap up I wanted to just know you know we talk a lot about socialist social issues and the consequences of bad governments and bad policies and Fergus McCabe passed this week I just wanted to kind of note that because he was an incredible um campaigner and activist and community worker in the inner city you know was involved with uh, his involvement with um icon and citywide and just I'm lucky enough with the work I've done kind of with inner city helping homeless I've got to know a lot of people in the inner city and the amount of people who have been posting and talking about their personal stories about him, like what he actually did and how he influenced their lives, like very in a very real way, is just extraordinary. And um, yeah, so I just kind of wanted to note that. Uh, another one as well is Lynn Rowan for the past couple of years has been working on the spent convictions bill. She's done incredible work on it. And Helen McEntee, the Justice, Justice Minister, they met last week, and this week there's a, a public consultation process that's been launched. So. Um, it's really important. Basically, the idea is that anybody who has spent convictions, certain certain types of convictions, you know, they're not like really violent or, you know, sexual violence or anything like that. But um, so, some people, those convictions stay on their record for their whole lives and it stops them traveling, it stops them getting jobs. Um, people who have gone to university and gotten, you know, degrees and masters in uh, medicine, psychology, whatever, they can't actually work in those fields. So it's it's just a completely, it's bad law, bad legislation legislation and as usual the work Lynn does is with the civic engagement group is going to communities and actually speak to the people that are affected by these laws and try to drive change that way so anyway the the consultation process was launched this week so if you're listening and you have any feelings on it you know anybody that might affect please you know give it a google get the consultation process and contribute to it because it's um it's very important and another thing i just wanted to know as well it was the five-year anniversary of the carrick mines fire um, this week and I just 
it didn't get a huge amount of coverage. Ellen Coyne wrote a really good article on it in the Irish Times. Um, her, her article kind of focused on how traveller accommodation, you know, there hasn't really been much change. And there hasn't also, been, I, I would argue even that over the past couple of years with the likes of Verona Morphy and the, you know, some of the candidates that have been completely acceptable to the likes of Fine, Fine Gael, uh, the you know, the, the narrative around um, travellers and travellers' rights and travellers' accommodation hasn't really changed usually. Uh, usually. Um, we have some really negative, um, acceptable commentary around travellers that unfortunately, even though we might have come on a couple of leaps and bounds in terms of what's acceptable racism was in in government, I don't think that's really been applicable to travellers. They, you know, hopefully with the, with the election of the likes of Eileen Flynn and um, some incredible traveller women, in activism that'll change but I just thought you know we needed to acknowledge that as well because uh it was a horrific tragedy and we just haven't seen enough change on the back of it yeah I look we're, we're way over time but I couldn't let this one go either without asking for a comment from the the two guests what we have we have on I've already seen Saoirse's reaction to it but I'll ask Connor as well um, and it's the Brian Stanley tweet uh from the Oireachtas on NAMA a deal worth 125 million with no minutes, no emails, no proposal in writing, no evaluation of property before sale, ending in a potential loss to the taxpayer of 29 million. Uh, on top of that, director involved in the sale ended up as a director in the company which bought the package. Uh, farcical. That's the quote from uh, Brian Stanley. Seriously, you, you had a reaction to that which was quite good on Twitter, I thought. Uh, you've worked in a cafe that you had to sign in and out for your toilet breaks. <laughs> and yet, we can do deals worth 125 million without any minutes or any signatures or anything. Um, do you want to comment on that before we finish up? Well, it's like, I remember reading a few years ago an article about um, a property portfolio, I think, that had been bought by NAMA for uh, 20 million and was sold back to the same person years later for 7 million. And I was like, can I just have 13 million like please like, like what do you have to well I know what you have to do but the idea that that is just rolling on constantly with so little accountability it's just it's just fucking sickening like honest to god I don't know where they think it's going to end um like looking all throughout history these kind of things where there's a certain you know class of people that are just taking and taking and taking and taking I don't know like, I don't know what their end game is. They're pro- like, I don't know where they think it will end. And it's, the the whole thing about NAMA, I always find is it's so difficult for an ordinary person to go online and find information. Um, Like, I was told a load of houses around here, a load of holly homes around here in Ackle are owned by property portfolios that are in NAMA. Like, already, I'm not fully sure what that even really means. But trying to find information on it is, like, Obviously, I'm starting from a really low knowledge point, but it's it's really difficult to know what's happening. So the whole thing is just it's just sickening, and the fact that that can be out in the open, and everyone's still like, oh yeah, yeah. like government doesn't seem to mind at all. Yeah. We're we're just it's completely normal now. It's just like everybody. Yeah, well, that's what we expect out of those guys. My favorite Nama story. Before I ask Connor to wrap up on on, on that bit, my favorite Nama story is when I was getting a walking tour in Berlin by uh, Checkpoint Charlie. 
and the tour guide um, turned around and said, and see all these restaurants here? There's all these sort of pop-up restaurants. These are all owned by a, uh, a company from Ireland called Nama. <laughs> they had, uh, and they were all closed. Everything was boarded up. Like, and it was just, I was, this is 2013. I was going, what, what, what was going on that Nama owns? All of these restaurants right at Checkpoint Charlie prime tourism probably one of the biggest tourist attractions in all of europe but um claire you want in before i ask connor to, to just very quickly because what sersha said there i i stayed in um i said close to Ackle recently and actually went to visit sersha and uh the, the holiday home that i was staying in it was a small little unit as part of other units but it was the only one that wasn't owned by the company that rent them out they actually rented it off this guy and he had bought it for like 38 or 40 grand and it was gorgeous but as we were talking as we were working out what happened we realised he'd actually bought it from Nam. we were like how again we had that conversation around well how do you know like who tells you about these little 35 grand homes you know that are going for sale within Nam? I mean you know he obviously knew somebody and I just yeah I thought that was that was particularly telling and Con- Connor, just on Nama, I- I- you probably have more knowledge and experience on that stuff than we do, or on the class of people who benefit from Nama. So, is there anything you 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 found? Did you were you surprised when you saw Brian Stanley's tweet? I presume you weren't, but no, just not in the least. Um, like uh, it's only been like three years since since like Project Eagle, uh, which was the last report which the CNAG did into a Nama portfolio. This one was. Um, there are court cases involved, so I actually will be careful kind of this time. But like, um, but like, this is the second in this is the second investigation that the controller and and the Auditor general has done into a NAMA portfolio, and the first one there are now two people up on on criminal charges. Um, Frank Cushnahan and Andy Andy Coulter, they were charged formally charged uh, during the uh, summer, uh, but the, it, they're both based up north. Uh, so you have um, a NAMA por- a portfolio that is currently the investigation of a criminal conspiracy. Um, like who'd be interested in that story? You know, <laughs> just, just just very briefly, what what they keep on saying is that Nam's going to make money. So it's like ten years later, and Nam's going to make on a four billion. But what they never say is that Nam is put forward as a bad bank, and it never was. It didn't take just the bad loans off the uh, off the bank's books. It took all commercial property loans off their books, the good ones and the bad ones, and it made so much money on the good ones that it's covered up all the ones that were just kind of bad ones. It wasn't just the bad loans it, mm. that it took. And this was, a, this was a big kind of criticism of some of the, of the, of the, of the kind of developers at the time. And not without just cause, I have to say, even the Arkham developers, but you are right because they were arguing that they could trade their way through these losses with their good loans, mm. with their good properties. But, but Nama took everything. Yeah. So Nama took Battersea Power Station and then sold it for a song back in like 2011, at, 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 at 2012, like, you know, sold off um, its London portfolio first and then worked on to the Irish kind of portfolio. So sold off all the good, high quality loans in London and New York, sold them all off, all, all the properties that underpinned those loans, mm. just as the market was on the rise. Yeah. So who benefits when you sell off something cheap? And the market's on the rise with those who are going to buy it, surely, you know. Uh, so, like, 
So like NAMA is, yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's something that is definitely worth, I think, kind of leftists studying more. Um, and I include, like, you know, myself and that, you know, that's all of us. Because it is a gateway. It's that phrase that, that Vassav Havel uses, you know. Things like these illuminate their surroundings. And that's what I love about NAMA. It illuminates its surrounding. And its surroundings, that whole class. And it's a wonderful way into it. And it is something that we should actually spend more time on. It actually would be worth doing a few kind of podcasts on that. Well, definitely. And it actually links into what I was saying at the start of the podcast about Left Block. And Emma Clancy is setting up Offshore, which is a, a podcast about the financial um, sector and tax avoidance and all of that stuff. And I know, Connor, you're going to be involved in that um, this week, uh, talking about the Apple case. But we do need more of this. We need more uh, illumination on these yeah these topics um so look anyway we're way over time again and this is the week at work episode 27 i believe if i remember rightly um i want to thank our guests connor mccabe and Saoirse McHugh, uh, and i want to thank the co-host claire o'connor as usual um if you like what you hear if you want to support the project of offshore or the abc of green politics or the week at work or trademark belfast's uh, a worker's guide to everything uh, or Newell Nanog, um, or the Left Block News website. Um, you can by going to patreon.com forward slash left block and find out more about the, the project there, about the intentions. Um, so again, thanks to our guests and thanks to Claire, and we'll see you all next week. Bye.